This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. Welcome to Bobcast. This is episode 33. I am Andrew Smith. Today, my co-host Caleb Castro and I conclude our interview with Dr. Alan Strange, professor of church history at Mid-America Reformed Seminary. We're talking about beauty and aesthetics. If you haven't already, you'll want to go back and listen to part one of that interview. We had a lot of fun having Dr. Strange on and talking to him about a fascinating topic. Let's dive in. What Bavink proposes then in this article, he talks about created beauty and art as an analogy for the glory of God. I guess the question this might raise, first of all, what does beauty share in common with the glory of God? How do we see the glory of God reflected in beauty? And what does this have to do maybe with other elements of Bavink's theology? And then to add on with that, I think especially when we think of, you made some statements a little bit ago on the cross, right? The, in the beauty of that and the anti-beauty of that, perhaps maybe a little bit of an elaboration and then other things in the world, uh, how we can analogously see the Lord's glory. To put that article, the Bavink article in context of his theology, of course, uh, in the second volume of the Reformed Dogmatics, he speaks about in, in, from pages 252 to 55, uh, I have this in the English here. I'll get my other brethren in here who who would only cite it in the Dutch, but uh, I'm working from the English. Uh, he has that section in terms of God's communicable attributes, right, and the glory of God. God's glory is communicable. It's not an incommunicable attribute. In other words, it's not an attribute that marks him as God in such a way that we have no share in it as we would speak of that in terms of uh, the uh, infinity of God or the eternity of God, the aseity of God, those things that really mark him as God. No, this is something that we as creatures have a share in, but of course, it's a different kind. It's not just a different degree, you might say. Uh, and he notes the words there, kavod uh, in the Hebrew and doxa in the Greek, He's comfortable with those words especially. They're very revelational. This is part of his revelational epistemology. We know what we know because God has revealed it uh, in nature and in Scripture. Here he's talking about Scripture. And we're created in that image, and thus we too uh, reflect that. Uh, We reflect that throughout the whole part of our being. And so glory, I would say this to note, glory is something that is broader than beauty, Glory has something about it, of course, because we know what the word in Hebrew, there's that Latin word that comes from that that we use for the kavod has about it a certain weightiness, right? And we use the word in Latin gravitas. We might say that a person lacks gravitas. So I would say that goes beyond the, the, the ordinary conception of just beauty. There's, there's something more to glory than beauty, but beauty is certainly part of glory. I think he's right to locate it in the way that he does as part of glory because it keeps it from becoming untethered to truth 
to goodness. It keeps it from becoming, in, in the way he's concerned with Augustine, for example, and others who use this in a, in a Platonic way. As you know, Plato has a view of the transcendentals as if they're things that exist in themselves. Plato believes in justice with a capital J and beauty with a capital B. Well, we don't believe in those things as having some kind of independent, separate existence. We believe in God with a capital G, and whatever is called justice is a reflection of his character. Whatever is called beauty is a reflection of his character, or glory is a reflection of his character. So he situates it in his theology. He rightly situates everything in God, so you don't have the platonic mistake you don't have the Gnostic error of these sort of free-floating transcendentals, which, you know, you can go in the direction of saying, is this beautiful in God? Is this just in God? And the reason, he's the standard of beauty. He's the standard of justice. He doesn't conform to some external standard. All the standards are a reflection of who he is. And Bavik's theology makes that manifestly clear. I think that's a really interesting reflection because like I know for myself when I'm looking at like literature, looking at even things like film and television and that kind of stuff, usually the things that are good are the things that somehow reflect to us something about God's attributes. Like for instance, his justice. I mean, most artistic expression that's telling some kind of story Usually, we like the ones where the bad guys get what's coming to them and the good guys win. You know, that reflection of justice, that reflection of truth, that reflection of integrity. I think one of the sad things of our age is that a lot of art, a lot of expression is distorting that and trying to push back against or push away from that. But in general, you can even see sort of this common grace reflection in art in that often the story that's being told does reflect to us something about God and something about his nature and even his law. Andrew, if I may jump in here, I, I agree entirely with what you're saying. Let me, let me give some examples, a little concrete example. I just saw recently The Highwayman, which is a much better account of Bonnie and Clyde than the 1967 film with Beatty and Dunaway. And it's better because it tells the truth much better. The earlier film glorifies them, and you see in this film, The Highwayman, those that do glorify Bonnie and Clyde are portrayed as fools. In other words, it shows you people who think Bonnie and Clyde were wonderful, but they're fools. And it really comes out on the side of they receive justice. Now, let me give you another example of a, of a film. It also is an opera. If you're familiar with the film Dead Man Walking, the purpose of that film is anti-capital punishment. And I don't know if, if your listeners remember this, but I remember it so vividly. I saw it, my wife and I saw it in the theater, This back in the days when you could go into a place called the cinema or the movies and actually watch something with other people what? sitting there. <laughs> um, Different times. Yes, yes, yes. Nobody had on masks, uh, except I think somebody robbed the popcorn stand, but no. Um, so we're there at Dead Man Walking, and it's uh, it's Sister Jean Prejean, who is this uh, advocate against the death penalty. The, the director, there's this brilliant scene where there's a cross-cutting between this heinous act, this man who is on death row, 
heinously killed a young couple and it's cross-cut his murder of them and his abuse and murder of them and then what the state was doing to him in executing him. And the idea of the filmmaker was clearly, and I read literature about it, was to portray that what he did to these innocent victims was the same as what the state was doing to him as a guilty. But let me tell you something, it did not communicate that. You saw what he did to these people that was was a horrible crime and sin, and the state was treating him with every consideration. He had clerical presence there. He had support. He had, there was dignity in his death. In other words, it was, the state was clearly carrying out justice, whereas what he did was a heinous, unaccountable crime to these people who had done nothing to him. It actually showed the justice of what he was getting. I mean, to me, it did. And so I rejoiced. I said, here's, here's as clear of instance as I've seen of God bringing forth a different truth. But God delights to do that. I I mentioned the irony of the cross. Think about when the high priest stands there and says contemptuously to the rest of the religious leaders, you know nothing at all. It is better that one man die than that the whole nation die. And the text tells us itself that He's not saying this with any good intention. He's saying it with all his evil and all his hatred and all his Mm. maliciousness. And yet God has a greater and higher and better purpose in it. God means by it that this death of our Lord Jesus Christ is for his people, the nation. Of course, that was the visible church then. It's for the visible church, which now exists worldwide. So again, you tie that in with the cross. At the one point, you see... They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so much of this, I mean, I I saw that in that film, uh, how that it's testifying, seeking to testify against the death penalty, when in fact it ended up, in my view, testifying for it. It showed the justice of it. And that's sort of what you, I think, were saying, Andrew, about how you can see justice, but you can see it. Even in spite of the intention of the artist Mm. at times, you can see something. Mm. That's God's common grace because I I think common grace means that sin is restrained in the unbeliever so that he actually can testify to things in God's world that he wouldn't otherwise testify Mm. to, even as the antithesis means that remaining sin is in the believer so that we're not as good as our profession is and they're not as bad as their profession is, their denial of God. God ameliorates that because if you take to its extreme the unbelieving view, that's hell. That's hell. And God is gracious. Hell on earth is not what we have. This is the best unbelievers will ever have it. That's a sobering thought. Unbelievers will never have it any better than it is here. Where they go afterwards, I'm talking about people who remain in unbelief, mm-hmm. it's going to be obviously worse. And this is this is the worst believers ever have it. I mean, that's just a great point to remember, even as you're counseling people, mm-hmm. uh, not to make light of what they're going through. No, no, no. But to encourage them that whatever they're going through at its depth, the next world is much, much better, incomparably so. Mm-hmm. And of course, beauty, wow. That's also whatever we perceive of it here. 
I wanted to mention this about the next world because now if we were to enter the next world, Paul talks about being caught up to the third. Mm-hmm. We don't know what this all means, but and of course it's also before the coming of Christ and the renewal of all things. But if we were to be somehow taken in our present state into the next world, that is to say, we in our regenerated but unglorified states were to be taken into the next world. I don't think we could even see or make sense of what we see. Mm-hmm. We need to be glorified. We need to be brought to perfection in our redemption. Mm-hmm. We need to be glorified so that in a new world, we will have the eyes to see what really is there. I don't think we have the full eyes to see even what's here. Mm-hmm. I think here we get glimpses of even the beauty that in a world that is not fully renewed and that will not be what it will be in the next world. I think beauty is something that is always a call to heaven. It Mm. should be a taste for heaven and a taste for what's to come. The descriptions, I think you need to say in Revelation, you know, we we understand we're not coming from a school, so to speak. We're not coming from a a method of interpretation that says, let's take this in the most literal of ways. And so people say, well, what does this description of these 12 stones mean, these, these precious gems? What's that all about? Clearly, it's about beauty. It's about beauty. So whatever it actually appears to be, when we get there, what it's like, what we've been told is it is beautiful beyond real description. It's metaphorically described. It's hinted at. Mm -hmm. It's hinted at. God's telling us it's going to be so lovely. This is the way I describe it to you now. Mm -hmm. But the reality is never less than the description. It's more than the description. Mm -hmm. I want to hit uh, two points on that real fast as we uh, move towards the end here. For one thing, as you're saying, I believe uh, Bob Inc. makes note in uh, chapter one of Wonderful Works of God that aesthetics and art essentially has something of a function of idealizing, uh, idealizing uh, a world to come, uh, whether we know it or not. We are portraying or imagining some form of an ideal world. Well, he, he makes note here in this essay on aesthetics uh, in regarding general revelation. The Lord's name is precious in the whole earth, and while he did not leave us without a witness, he also fills our hearts with happiness when we observe that glory. When observing and enjoying true beauty, it is not man who bestows his affections and moods on the observed object, but it is God's glory that meets and enlightens us in our perceptive spirits through the works of nature and art. Humanity and the world are related because they are both related to God. The same reason, the same spirit, the same order lives by both. By God's grace, beauty is observed, felt, and translated by artists. It is prophecy and guarantee that this world is not destined for ruin, but for glory. And he goes on and making the distinction, however, that he's not equating God with art or right. art with God. He's saying art cannot, in fact, art cannot replace worship, nor can the theater replace the church, nor can Lessing's Nathan replace the Bible. <laughs> Beauty can prophesy about the promised land and can give us a glimpse from a distance as from Mount Nebo. But it is only religion, reconciliation, and peace with God that ushers us into the Canaan of peace. Right. And I believe this is very much uh, in line with what you yourself have been saying here. Now, there, there are uh, various camps and some in Christian uh, circles who might look to renew, uh, transform aspects of the earth to uh, redeem various areas of the earth. That's not what Bob Inc. is saying here, though. These sort of camps might at times cite those such as uh, Kuiper or Bob Inc. I mean, that, that's not what he's saying. No, that's no. not what he's saying. What is then the function of art when it comes down to it? How, how do Christians carry art or conceive of art in the various areas of life? I think that, let me just say, 
to kind of put a fine point on what I was saying earlier and, and tie it in here, anti-beauty, we've talked about anti-beauty. That's what you see, particularly in the 20th century and coming into the 21st, we saw in art, music, we'll just take that, but you could go across the board, literature, you know, art broadly conceived, we saw a lot of what, what Andrew particularly was talking about is as things produced to make us uncomfortable, to make us, you know, not beauty but anti-beauty, that points towards hell. Mm-hmm. That points towards hell. That's the ultimate end and the logical conclusion, you might say, of such. Even as all great art, that which manifests beauty, and there is a certain sense of we know beauty when we see it. I don't want to say there's no in the eye of the beholder, but we know it when we see it because we're made in the image of God. And when we're rightly operating <laughs> as renewed people, particularly in his image, uh, or even as those... Uh, by common grace, we're, we're, you know, we know that this is beautiful sound. We know this is beautiful sight. That calls us to this other world and higher uh, thing. How are Christians then to engage? I think Bach is a great example. I, I don't want to just leave it with him. He seems almost superhuman. He actually wrote more music than most people could physically copy in a lifetime. We don't know how he was so productive, but certainly the answer is he trusted in the Lord. That there, The Lord helped him. But what an artist is doing, uh, whether they're a sculptor, whether they're a composer, a painter, we could just go through all the arts. Who is a Christian? Uh, and I, I know plenty of artists who are Christians, very good artists of all in all these areas. And they're very conscious of what they do. Whatever you do, right, do it to the glory of God. They're conscious of doing it to the glory of God. And they're seeking to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There's a great consciousness that what they do is not with eye service as men pleasers, but serving the Lord. Mm-hmm. So that this is something that they're making that will be viewed by their fellow man and they want to be enjoyed. But it's it's being made as a kind of a sacrifice, a, a sacrifice of praise to God. Mm-hmm. Because all of our work should be seen as a kind of sacrifice of praise to God, mm-hmm. praise and thanksgiving to God, and obviously, then it's gonna it's gonna benefit uh, others when we, when we do what we do uh, for His glory. Now, the thing is, when people produce or perform in accordance with the gifts God has given them, even if they're not seeking to glorify God, maybe they seek not to, but yet it still does. Because once I was listening to Luciano Pavarotti, and someone came into the room and they said, is he a Christian? And I said, well, he's leaving his wife. He's in an affair with his secretary. And, you know, he's a traditional Roman Catholic. But no, I don't believe that he is a believer from a number of things. Uh, I said, but he sure sings like one, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. And they were like, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. And I said, is this voice beautiful? They said, yes. And I said, this glorifies God. Whether he intends Mm -hmm. to glorify God or not by it, there is an objective glorification of God because this is such a lovely voice. He's singing beautiful music here. uh, And I I just think that's a powerful thing. Uh, It ultimately can't detract from God's glory, even if the even if the producers are seeking to do so. Like I said in that film where they're arguing one thing and it comes out to me as a believer arguing something very different, standing on its head what they're trying to argue. I mean, I think we see in any number of ways our God reigns and he will have his way here. And, you know, you think of Joseph's life. You think of all the things that happened. And and, and we don't mean to say we don't excuse his brothers, and we don't say that what his brothers did to him wasn't truly evil. It was. But 
God turned it to good. Mm. And the good and the beautiful are intimately connected and related. I mean, mm. something which is good, there, there's a beauty in, uh, in kindness, isn't mm. there? Mm-hmm. There's a beauty in, in, in love, in showing mm. favor and affection. So, yeah, I think the beautiful, though, is something that all of us can strive for uh, in whatever field we're in, that we do what we do to the best of our ability, but we do it as a sacrifice of praise to Him, Mm. and it will most benefit mankind. That's good. One final question in light of the things we've discussed here then today. When we look at the church now, in many corners of it, we see this sort of, I guess you could almost say, fundamentalist impulse to resist culture, avoid culture, run away and hide from culture. On the flip side, we see this impulse that maybe goes too far to the other extreme where we need to embrace all of culture and attempt to redeem and and transform all of culture. I guess just a practical question As Christians living in this world, what are some maybe brief pointers, brief advice on how we ought to think about and engage with the arts and with culture and with this task of of seeking out and and understanding beauty? Well, that's a great question. I wasn't really planning to speak to this specifically, but one journal produced monthly that comes to my mind that your readers may be interested in checking it out, maybe you've talked about it before, is called The New Criterion. And The New Criterion was founded uh, by some folks who were coming off the New York Times when they were sort of going away from any standards whatsoever. And The New Criterion is not explicitly Christian. It has Christians and non-Christians that write for it. The basic assumption or sort of the core value of the journal is that it believes that there are standards of excellence that are discoverable in each of the fields in terms of the disciplines as they present themselves. They have traditional uh, approaches to music, to art, to many things. That doesn't mean that they don't like contemporary things, but they, they don't believe it's just anything goes kind of view. They, they believe that there are standards. And each issue uh, has poetry in it. Each issue has, of a very high level, has a music review, theater review, uh, and I mean theater, I don't mean cinema, because uh, I, I don't think it has that in it. Uh, doesn't typically review films, though National Review reviews films. Ross DeThot reviews films, and then he also writes for the New York Times, which are good. John Simon used to do for them, and I think John Simon was one of the finest film critics and theater critics there was. So there are there are critics that are very good that you can look to. So you can look, like I say, there are music reviews, there are art reviews, there are theater reviews, there are literature reviews, all in this book called The New Criterion. But also to, I read regularly the New York Review of Books, which is the premier intellectual, very liberal book review in the country. Uh, the New York Times uh, book review, which is in the in the Sunday Times. So I um, I think these are places to, to, to look. And I think just as Christians, uh, get involved, uh, get uh, have a membership in your local museum. Go at least if you don't subscribe to the orchestra. I mean, you can get subscriptions to the orchestras that are maybe just four or five uh, concerts. If you want to get involved with the opera, uh, I'll be happy to talk to you about that. I have articles on this. I have articles in New Horizon uh, that give, uh, which is the OPC's magazine. I mentioned that that I was quoting from that uh, uh, Bach Wagner. I have an article 
back in um, uh, March 2015 of the New Horizons called The Opera and Orchestral Music, which is an introduction to it all. Sort of like, where do I get started in orchestral music? It's just such a huge maze. And I basically advise you, I give you a path through this kind of introduction to the, to the, to the orchestra and introduction to the opera. New Horizons Magazine of the OPC, March 2015. Uh, we want to thank you for coming on, Dr. Strange. My and- pleasure. Uh, just do you have any final words? Is there anything you're working on? Anything you'd like to tell our listeners where they can find more about you or any projects you might be working on? Well, none of my projects have directly to do with aesthetics. I'm uh, I'm writing in Ordained Servant, which is uh, the OPC online uh, journal for office bearers. Mm-hmm. I'm writing a commentary. It's being serialized on our... Um, Form of Government and Book of Discipline. Uh, it's a bit fuller uh, than the URC may be uh, ac- uh, accustomed to. So, I mean, you might think uh, that's not a long work. Oh, no, there's a lot more there to so talk about. So it's 50 pages. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm also uh, preaching through and using the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and I plan to publish that. There's just not a lot published sermons on that. Uh, trying to get the the Presbyterians to do some catechetical preaching, so uh, which I think is very valuable for teaching doctrine. Again, if people assume, I tell the fellows, I say, you know, all these things you assume that people know, you need to talk to your people. Go in their homes and talk to them. And don't think you don't need to teach them. You do. <laughs> and it's it's not that they're not extraordinarily capable people, and some people are going to know a lot but people that you think would know won't necessarily know. But in terms of in terms of our subject today, I think the best thing is just to if you're an artist, produce what you do to the glory of God. And if you say, well, I can't play an instrument or anything, well, you can listen to these things. And mm-hmm. YouTube, of course, I'm so thankful for that. That has opera singers on it that I never mm-hmm. saw. I wasn't alive to see going back into the 30s. And it's amazing what you can hear on there, who is on there. So we have more available than we've ever had. I mean, this stuff is all at your fingertips. Great works of art of every sort are at your fingertips. And I'm, I'm doing uh, more work in these areas. There's, there's some volumes that have come out on uh, Wagner's uh, Ring, a two-volume set just on the ring, talking about all the theological and philosophical themes in it. I was supposed to go with some friends, including Derek Thomas. We were going to hear the ring here in Chicago uh, back in April, but Mm -hmm. COVID canceled the whole thing. Uh, Sorry for that. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm hoping to get back to that and to write this larger piece on the ring. I did listen to it otherwise, uh, because obviously I've heard it many times. There's plenty to do. There's plenty out there. We are we are in a tough time right now, because uh, particularly for music and theater, they're mm-hmm. you know we're in COVID times. Yeah, YouTube doesn't sure. help get a lot of money. Oftentimes for YouTube performances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. You know, you, you are a, a wealth of knowledge, a great resource, uh, and and um, a servant of the church in these ways, and uh, especially in, in this topic of aesthetics, right? I just feel it's something we really need to look very much uh, at in the reform perspective. Well, in an aesthetics, I'll mm-hmm. just say this to close. I do not fancy myself. I mean, I've done formal work 
in epistemology, for mm -hmm. example, I've done very little formal work in aesthetics. Mm -hmm. My most of my aesthetics is just it's in mm -hmm. the application. It's mm -hmm. loving the objects of this mm -hmm. art and pursuing that. You can make aesthetics a study, uh, or you can just enjoy mm -hmm. the art, and that's what I do. I think that's a strong start for where we should really all begin in the study, uh, a love for it. Yeah. Well, that's uh, all the time that we have for today. Uh, we thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. We hope that it was uh, edifying and very helpful to you uh, in various ways, and that it gives a lot to consider in terms of beauty and, uh, and art and our great and glorious God. Until next time, wish you tote zines. Tote zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.